Hey everyone, you're tuned in to the Philippi Sermons Podcast. We're currently in a series through the book of Acts. If you want more information about our church, head over to philippichurchgp.com. There you can also find a link to our other Conversations podcast, where we interview people and have Jesus-centered, Jesus-focused conversations. Hey, may the Lord bless you and speak to you as you take in His Word. Bible teaches fairly clearly that as created beings, as humans, uh, we can just simply observe the natural universe and come up with the conclusion that we've been created, that there's a creator. That just by looking at what's around us, just by looking at the cosmos, just looking at the universe, that the conclusion that we should come to as humans is that there is a God that we were created by that God, that we were created for that God. The psalmist in Psalm 19, he says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. So the psalmist is painting the picture that the heavens are literally um, 24-7 declaring not only the existence of God, but some of the nature of God. It says, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In them, has, or in them he has set a tent for the sun. Paul picks up a similar idea when he's writing to the Romans, and he's actually systematically um, basically putting out a case against all of humanity, that all of humanity basically has no excuse before God. Um, and in the first chapter of Romans, verse 18, he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Interesting implication there is that humanity by nature is, uh, is always going to try to suppress the truth of God, uh, that we actually know it in our subconscious, but yet we suppress it. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Speaking about humanity, saying what can be known about God is plain to humanity, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. So Paul just very clearly makes the statement that humans, by nature, should understand that there is a God and something even about that God just by looking at creation. Uh, theologians refer to this as what is called general revelation. It's revelation that is essentially available to all human beings, even human beings that are isolated from Western culture or isolated uh, from the Bible can, can of their own um, observances, uh, come to the conclusion that there is a God. That's called general revelation. Theologians would call this, the Bible, and Jesus and his words, special revelation or specific Revelation. That's revelation that God gives uh, that we wouldn't have unless he gave it to us, essentially. But my point being, uh, humans should be able to discern uh, the truth about God just simply by observing the world that we live in. Now, science, biology, the cosmos, these things certainly should draw our attention to the fact that there's a creator. But I actually believe, and my thesis, if you will, is that the human 
psyche or the human longing or the human nature that is universal among all seven billion people on the earth, that humanity itself, humans themselves, are actually the greatest case for a creator. They're actually the greatest case for the gospel. And I believe the reason being is because God stitched into humanity not only his nature and his, his image, but he stitched into humanity a longing for the truth that he's revealed. He's stitched into humanity particular longings, particular awarenesses, particular fears, uh, particular inclinations that if we look at them, I think we see a case for the truth of the gospel. And that's what I want to do this morning. Our passage is kind of interesting. It's Acts chapter 28, verse 1 through 10. Kind of a, just a short little section. Um, it's really narrative material. and Essentially, Paul uh, and all of the people that were on the ship transporting him to Rome uh, after they shipwrecked. They shipwrecked on an island called Malta. And it's sort of an island off the beaten path. Uh, Luke refers to them basically as non-Greek-speaking um, people. He says in verse 2 of our text that the, he calls them native people. It's the Greek word barbaroi, which we get the word barbarian. But basically, these were just sort of just common people, island dwellers. They weren't necessarily steeped in all of the philosophy of the Greek world to the same extent as maybe Athens or Corinth or some of these other cities. Just a basic group of people. And so Paul and his friends and um, the Roman guards and, and, and all these people, they wash up on the shore of Malta, and they're greeted by the people of Malta. And as I was reading this, I, I just sort of noticed how interesting that the things that the people of Malta do in these 10 verses are such universal and common practices of human beings. They just do things that I'm like, well, you know, humans just do these things. They just do these things. And, and these things that humans do are actually really good evidence for a creator. So that's, that's what we're going to look at in a, in a nutshell. And let me just give you a little bit of a background um, as to how we're getting into this point in the narrative. If, if you remember, Paul's been arrested at this point. Uh, he was arrested because a mob um, tried to kill him, basically, in the temple. Some of the Jews from Ephesus that had it out for Paul uh, stirred up a crowd, uh, and they were, they were after him. And so the Romans inserted themselves into the situation. They arrest Paul and lead him off to the barracks. And as they're leading him off, of course, the apostle Paul, the evangelist, the missionary, uh, he says, excuse me, can I turn and address the mob uh, with the gospel? And, and he does that. Uh, which was his first of four defenses that he gives, uh, not only of himself, but of the gospel. Um, he goes into the barracks and ultimately ends up being interrogated, uh, where he lets them know he's actually a Roman citizen, which changes everything. And because he's a Roman citizen, he ultimately ends up appealing to Caesar. So because he's a Roman citizen, Governor Festus sends Paul on his way to have his day in court um, under what would have then been Emperor Nero. So as Paul is on this ship with Roman guards and with some grain merchants that would be taking grain from Egypt up to Rome, they, in, uh, they encounter some, some rough seas, ultimately end up shipwrecking. Um, as they're trying to go around the island of Crete, they end up getting blown off of course um, with a really gnarly storm called uh, the Northeaster. It blows them clear out to sea, and eventually they just barely survive after two weeks of thinking they're going to die at sea. They barely survive by um, shipwrecking themselves, um, running aground on an island that we now know in chapter 28 is called Malta. 
So that's where we pick up the narrative. Now, the way I want to address this narrative, we're going to just walk through it verse by verse. But the way I'd like to outline it, again, is we're trying to, to show um, the evidence that, that, that humanity knows the existence of God just simply by the things that are programmed within us. Uh, let me give you an example of that, and then I'll give you uh, our outline. Have you ever watched uh, how somebody makes a spring? A spring, like a car spring. It's, it's really interesting. They take a piece of metal, like a long rod. I was watching them make uh, a spring for cars the other day on, on, on TV. Anyways, they take a long metal uh, piece of metal, and they, they heat it up, superheat it, and then they wrap it around a long cylinder. Uh, after they wrap it around a long cylinder, it makes the shape of a spring, and then they quench it in water, and it sort of solidifies the new shape of a spring. And what it's, what's, what's so effective and interesting about a spring is that no matter how you push it or contort it or twist it or, or pull it, it, it always wants to go back to its original design, its original intent. And, and that, that makes a spring very useful because as it compresses, it naturally wants to go back to the shape that it was designed to be in. The energy is always pushing it back to its originally designed form. Now, the case I'd like to make this morning in Acts 28, 1 through 10, is that human beings, like springs, have been formed in a way that the energy of that human being is always pushing towards its intended design. Now, we're in a fallen world, which means that that spring is being twisted, contorted, and pressed, and pulled, um, and it's, un it's unclear sometimes what that spring is really supposed to look like. Um, if you follow the analogy. But what is clear is that the energy of that spring is always pressing towards its original design. And the same is true of human beings. We were created with an original design in mind by our creator. The mind of God created us for a particular type of existence. And in this fallen and sinful world, uh, you know, it's contorted and it's twisted and it's broken. But our natural desires, our subconscious desires, our deepest desires actually show and reveal what we were intended for, what God made us for. So the way I want to go at this, uh, we're going to look at four things in the passage. And these four things, I believe, are each characteristics of humanity. Okay? These are things that I think we can look at humans and go, man, humans just do this, don't they? Don't humans just do this? And each of those four things, I believe, are going to make a case uh, for the validity of the gospel. So human nature proves that we were made by God and for God because... We as humans were programmed to long for four things. And those four things we're going to see in our text. And I'll give them to you right now. You can write them down, and then we'll go back through them. First, humans were programmed for goodness. Secondly, humans were programmed for fairness. Thirdly, humans were programmed for greatness. And fourthly, humans were programmed for wholeness. And we're going to see examples of each of these four longings of the human psyche throughout our text. So let's start with goodness. This is in verse 1 and 2 of our text. So let's dive in. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. And you can imagine sort of wondering, you know, how are these guys going to respond to us sort of washing up on their island? 
Uh, I mean, you know, there'd be a lot of uh, probably concern uh, about you know, just exactly how they might have been received. It could have been, uh, uh, they could have been eaten. <laughs> they could have been attacked. They could have been arrested. You know? But what's interesting that Luke notes is that the way that the people of the island of Malta greet them is with, he says, quote, unusual kindness. So these people that don't know Paul, they don't know Luke, they, they probably, you know, who knows what their affiliation is or, or, or how they feel about Rome. But regardless, they, they greet this 230, whatever it is, men uh, that are cold and wet and half drowned. They greet them with unusual kindness and they bring them into, um, into their community and they kindle a fire to, to warm them up. Now, why am I um, parking on that? Well, I think it makes my first point. My first point is that that human nature has a desire for goodness, a desire for good. Now, these are pagans. Okay, these are non-Christians. Uh, these aren't, they, they aren't even Jewish people. They're, they're just they're, they're, um, non-Greek-speaking, multi-island-dwelling pagans. But yet, at the same time, they show this unusual kindness to Paul uh, and to this group. Now, I, I actually believe that even though we are fallen and human, and depraved at our core. The book of Romans and much of the Bible makes that essentially clear. Even though we are dead in our trespasses and sins, as human beings, God has programmed into us universally a desire to be good. A desire to be good. But what we don't have is we don't have the means to be good. We have a desire to be good. We have a desire to be better. We have a desire to do good. We simply do not have the means. You know, if you uh, were to sit with people that were on death row, the majority of them, and you were to ask them, you know, do you, uh, do you like the decisions that you've made? Uh, many of them would say, no, no, I don't. And if you were to ask them, uh, do you have a desire to be a better person? or to have lived in maybe a better life. Many of them would say, yes, yes, I do. Um, now, that's, that's so interesting, because even though at our core, because of the sin nature we've inherited from Adam, um, we are ultimately, uh, we choose sin oftentimes. We also have the propensity oftentimes to choose good. We're a mixed bag. The reason I'm bringing that up is because I, I think that you can um, lead someone who is not a believer, to see that in themselves and then lead them to ask the question, why is that? Ask them this question. Why do we know what is right, yet do what is wrong? And then maybe a follow-up question is, what, what do you think will actually fix that? Why do we as humans seem to know and long for being better, but yet not have really what it takes to actually be better? Self-help only gets us so far. I mean, we can clean up our exterior, but at the end of the day, we're still, uh, we're pretty jacked up people. So if we have a desire for goodness, but we do not have the means to actually truly be good, then the question becomes, how does the gospel answer that dilemma? How does the gospel answer this dilemma of our desire as humans to be good? Well, it answers it because what Jesus came saying, what his message was, was not a message of rearranging ourselves or improving ourselves. Jesus' message of the gospel was actually rebirthing ourselves. 
to not just be sort of um, fixed up or souped up, but to actually be born again. I think about Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. You remember that when Nicodemus came to Jesus? The fact that he's even coming to Jesus, I think, sort of um, probably suggests that Nicodemus was looking to maybe soup himself up a little bit. Maybe there's something he's missing. This Jesus seems to have some interesting teachings. Perhaps there's something that I can learn from Jesus. Perhaps there's some commentary on Torah that I've missed that could help me, you know, on my... Uh, desire, Nicodemus might say, to become um, all that I can be. And he sits with, with Jesus, and Jesus' response is not quite what he's expecting. <laughs> Jesus' response ultimately is, Nicodemus, the only way you can enter the kingdom of heaven is to be born again. In other words, everything you've ever done in your life, everything that you've ever worked for, all of your, your degrees, all of your intelligence, all of your holiness, all of your piousness, none of that actually counts for anything. The only way you're going to get into the kingdom of heaven is if you are born again. And what Jesus is suggesting in that encounter is the theological reality that we now call regeneration. The, the, the common uh, phrase, born again, is something we, we hear a lot in Christianity. But it is really, uh, it's an, an amazing reality of what makes the gospel the answer to the real human dilemma. This human dilemma that I want to be good, but I can't seem to do good. I want to be better, but I can't seem to fix myself. The gospel answers that by answering, you're right. You can't be good. You can't be better. You can improve your behavior a little bit. You can modify your behavior a little bit. But you can't dip your hand into the deep parts of your heart and change your affections. So what the gospel says is, the gospel says the answer to that is actually that you become born again. That you get an entirely new nature. That you essentially start over that you start over and that now you have these new affections that now come from the Holy Spirit living within you. So I think the fact that we see humans doing good things is not actually something that we need to explain away. I think the fact that we see humans desiring to be good people is actually really good evidence for the gospel. But even better evidence is the fact that people desire to do good and they just can't seem to do it. That no matter how much our society desires to be holy or good or better or whatever, uh, we continue to have issues. And we have issues because what we need is we need to be re reborn. We need to be born again. Now, the, the second thing here that I want to point out, not only are, as humans are we programmed to long for goodness, but we're also programmed to long for fairness. And I think that's good evidence. So take a look at verse 3 in our narrative. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, so remember the natives are making a fire for um, Paul uh, and, and the crew here to keep him warm. So Paul goes out to gather some sticks. Paul wasn't above menial labor. He says, I'm going to go and I'm going to help these guys get a fire going. And, and, and as he's doing this, it says a viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. I mean, good night. He's just trying to grab some sticks and oops, one of those sticks ended up not being a stick. It ended up being a viper. It latches on to Paul's hand. And when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. You might notice in your Bible, by the way, that justice is capitalized. It's because it's a proper name. It's not necessarily justice. It's the personification of justice, which was a Greek god. 
a Greek goddess, actually, the daughter of Zeus, uh, and they believe that justice uh, was the one who determined these kinds of things. So they're looking at this scene and they're thinking, wow, this, you know, this uh, waterlogged um, Jewish um, man just barely survived death, uh, you know, just barely somehow managed to not die at sea with this shipwreck. And now we just got bit by a poisonous snake. So, so the logical conclusion that their human brain brings them to is that, uh, that of fairness. This guy must have done something wrong. Paul must have done something wrong. If he hadn't done something wrong, he wouldn't be dying right now because clearly the goddess, justice, is not favoring him. She's not favoring him because he's clearly a bad person. Now, that, that's just interesting to me because what it reveals is it reveals this natural instinct in us as humans for fairness. This natural instinct in us to assume that bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. This is the whole karma idea, right? Uh, and and that, that's nothing new. I mean, humans have, always, humans have always thought that way. In fact, most, just about any religion out there, aside from Christianity, is built on that premise. If you do good, you'll get good. If you do bad, you'll get bad. It's actually just classic legalism. That if I live a good life, I should have good things happen to me. Uh, this is something that is just hardwired into the human psyche. Uh, and I actually think it's a good evidence for the gospel. I think it's good evidence for the gospel. We've got lots of examples of our human desire for fairness. Uh, I think about my three-year-old, you know, when she notices that her sister gets a little bit more food than her, or if she notices that she gets three M&Ms and uh, her brother gets five M&Ms. I mean, it's just like, watch out, you know, she's going to lose it. Because she has this in, intrinsic, built-in idea and understanding of fairness. It's built into her. She knows when something is not fair. I mean, just look at our country right now. It, it feels like it's being split in half at the seams because we have people on both sides that are both thinking they're championing fairness. Now, despite what side you're on and despite what you think, my point is simply that as humans, we understand the importance of fairness and justice. Okay, we understand it. And my point is that our unquenchable sense of justice is a proof that fundamental change is necessary in this world. I think it's good evidence for the fact that we as humans know something is broken. Let me just try to say it very clearly. We as humans were not programmed for injustice. That's why everything we as humans invent has something to do with justice or fairness built into it. Because we weren't meant to live in a broken world. Well, so what? Well, I would encourage you to ask your non-believing friends, you know, especially if they're, if they're ranting or raving or complaining about injustice in any way, whether that be from the government or whether that be from a, a friend or a person, I would encourage you to, to take that opportunity to insert gospel truth and to go, you know, how can justice, just ask him this question, how can justice ever truly be found if we do not all pay fully for our sins? You know, ask them, okay, so you seem to be very aware of justice. Um, how does justice happen in the world completely? I mean, can we ever have a world that is completely just? I think if anyone's being honest, we, we know that the only way that the world will ever be fully just is if every wrong that's ever been committed is fully paid for. Every wrong, everything I've done, everything you've done, uh, is fully paid for. What the gospel does, it allows for redemption and freedom to happen 
because God himself steps in and pays the debt fully. He pays the debt fully, which means that God can both be just and the justifier, as Romans says. He can both be the judge and be the atonement. He can be the judge and the sacrifice. He can pay for the sins and forgive the sins simultaneously, which makes him perfectly righteous, and it sets the table for a perfect and just future world where God's people can be perfectly forgiven. Sin is not forgotten. It is paid for in full. The gospel answers the question of fairness. So you see already just in the first four verses how interesting it is looking at these people of Malta, how they have this desire uh, for goodness, but an inability to truly be good. They have this desire for fairness, but if you were to press them, they would see we don't really have the ability to create a truly fair society. Thirdly, they have a desire for greatness. Look at verse 5. So after Paul gets bit by the snake, it says, verse 5, he, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now, isn't this interesting? You can almost sense Luke's humor in writing it down because they go from thinking that Paul must be a criminal because he got bit by a snake to now thinking that, well, he, he's got to be some kind of a god, some kind of a deity for him to be able to survive this snake bite. It's really intriguing. And what it, what it shows me is it shows me this human built-in desire to deify things or people. It shows me this natural human proclivity that we have is to worship. And to, to love the idea of someone being extraterrestrial, someone being superhuman, someone being above or better than anything we can ever uh, possibly be. I mean, every mythology, every culture in humanity has heroes. And every mythology and every culture has superheroes. You know, we, we love the idea of being able to transcend humanity, to be better than we could ever be in and of ourselves, to be stronger than we could ever be in and of ourselves. I mean, every kid growing up at least every boy probably has played the game where you say, if you could have one superhero power, what would it be? Could you smash through walls? Would you be invisible? It's because we have this inner longing in us to see someone as being greater than human. And what does that tell us? I think it tells us that programmed within us, like that spring, remember the spring analogy? Programmed within us is a desire to transcend beyond the limitations of the fallen human world that we live in presently. I think just simply by looking at the natural reaction of the people of Malta to Paul um, doing something supernatural and then their instant desire to, to, to deify him, we see a human proclivity to wish and long for something greater than what we experience in the natural world. Okay, so so what? So, so I would challenge a non-Christian, if you're talking to a non-Christian, if you should challenge them and say, have you ever noticed um, that you have a desire to live outside of your own means? Have you ever noticed that you have a desire to be something greater and bigger than you could possibly ever be? And, and then ask him this question. Say, if you are nothing but um, a, a random chance result of all of your circumstances... If there's nothing beyond you, if, if you're just sort of primordial soup that just happened to grow up into a self-aware being, then why is it that you have this inner ache, this inner longing for something you'll never achieve, to be greater than you 
could ever be, to, to outlive death, to transcend death. Where does that come from? The gospel would tell us that it comes from the fact that we were created to be something more than we presently are. We were created with an intention to be eternal beings in perfect communion with God. So how does the gospel answer this desire? It answers this desire by by placing our desire to worship a superhuman, first of all, on the person of Christ. Christ is the superhero that we're all longing for. He's the one that we're, we're, we're really excited about. We just, we just end up worshiping uh, Greek gods instead or whatever it is that we end up worshiping. Jesus was the firstborn of many. Are you, are you familiar with that verse in 1 Corinthians? Jesus is the firstborn of many. And what that verse is communicating is it's communicating that, that Jesus, his ability to transcend the natural limitations of humanity by resurrection, to be able to conquer death, and not only conquer death, but get a glorified body, basically a superhuman body, his ability to do that um, is something that we're going to do as well. Jesus was the first to transcend the limitations of a fallen and broken human world, and we will follow suit. We will also get resurrected bodies, superhuman bodies, bodies that we were ultimately designed, that our soul, (coughs) excuse me, that our soul was ultimately designed to inhabit. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that exciting? Again, there is good evidence in the natural bent of human beings for the answers that I believe the gospel gives. The last thing that I see humans longing for uh, that I think is good, credible evidence for the gospel uh, is wholeness. It's wholeness. So not only uh, goodness, not only fairness, not only greatness, but lastly, wholeness. Look at verse 7. Again, we just see very natural human instinct here. Now, in the neighborhood of that place uh, were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. So after they see Paul do this miraculous thing, uh, surviving this snake bite, they basically take him to the chieftain, the head, the head of the island. And we don't know if he was a procurator like Felix or Pilate, or if he was just the person on the island that owned the most land. But he was the most influential person. So they, they take uh, Paul to uh, this man Publius. Uh, And it just so happened uh, that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. Uh, Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. So so Paul is given this gracious ability in this moment to heal, um, to bring just this healing into this father of Publius um, miraculously. And everyone's just sort of watching this happen what, what is this? Now, they already think Paul is a god, um, so, so now I'm sure um, they're really impressed. Now, it's not in the text, but I would guarantee, just based on Paul's character, that he turns and says, hey, let me just tell you where this power comes from. It's not coming from me. But regardless, in verse uh, 9, when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to set sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So what happens is they watch Paul do this miraculous healing, and then all of a sudden the whole island basically is like, man, this guy has the ability to heal. So you can just imagine every person on the island with a backache, with a broken leg, uh, with, with maybe dysentery, with disease, um, they all come to Paul. Now what's interesting is our human here, what's interesting here is our human desire for wholeness. You see, again, we know in the deepest parts of our humanity, we know that we were not meant to be broken. 
We know that our bodies were not meant to decompose and to break and to, to fracture. We, knew, we know that our minds were not meant to be scattered and anxious and frustrated. Uh, we know that death is not supposed to happen. There is an inner longing and an inner desire for wholeness. For wholeness. We just know that we're supposed to be whole. And this is another example here of human nature. This guy can heal. Let's all go. Same thing happened with Christ. Everywhere he went, crowds would come. Why? Because this man has healing. Not only does he have physical healing, but he has spiritual inner healing as well. I mean, one of the best-selling genre books out there is anything regarding inner healing or just healing in general. Okay, we all want to be made whole. And you may be saying, so what? Okay, so what? But here's what I would encourage you to ask a non-believer. Ask him, why does it seem that no matter how healthy you are, you still feel like you're not whole? Why does it matter that, you know, for people that have the money to go and get plastic surgery, that no matter how much plastic surgery they get, they still feel as though they're not, uh, they don't look the way that they should? Or, or why does it feel like the guy going to the gym every day, that no matter how big or how healthy you get, you still feel like you should be healthier? Uh, or or why, does it, why does it matter the person getting counseling or the person um, seeking therapy or the person reading self-help books, that no matter how much knowledge or health you can obtain, you still feel like you're not whole? And to that I would answer because like the spring, you were programmed to be whole at a level that this world cannot provide. My answer would be that you have not met the true great physician, the one that can not only cause you to stand up and walk in Mark chapter 2, but also forgive your sins, make you whole. It's the reason that the rich young ruler came to Jesus even though he had everything, even though he had everything he could possibly want. He still knew there was something missing, probably the same reason Nicodemus came to Christ. He still knew there was something missing. And here on this island, the power of God is miraculously displayed and the whole island flocks because we as humans know that we are broken and we are in need of wholeness. So how does the gospel answer this desire? How does the gospel answer this desire? It answers it because part of the gospel is not just the forgiveness of sins and not just the resurrection of Christ, but part of the full gospel is the fact that Christ is returning. And when he returns, he will take away all brokenness. And he will renovate the earth and the universe with all wholeness. Every human, let me just review here, every human has a built-in a built desire for goodness, for fairness, for greatness, and for wholeness. And the only true answer to each of those desires is the gospel. The gospel answers those. So in a text like this, in, in, in Acts 28, we can look at this and just see, wow, there are patterns to human behavior. There are patterns to human desire. And those patterns are just as true today as they were 2,000 years ago on the island of Malta. And if we can tap into those patterns, I think we have great opportunity as gospelers to begin doing what Jesus asked us to do, which is to make disciples. So let me conclude with this. Just a couple of things. Sometimes as Christians, we feel like we just don't have enough in common with non-Christians to be able to bridge that gap and begin to evangelize, begin to tell them the gospel. Every single one of the four longings that we just went over, you share that in common with a non-Christian because you as a human being still have those longings. And you as a human being still have a proclivity to not believe the gospel in those four areas. So you can relate. You have so much in common 
with a non-Christian because you are both human, because you are both image bearers, because you both come with these same longings, these same desires. The only difference is that you have the answer and they don't. That you have believed the antidote and they haven't. So I would just encourage you to connect, to connect with non-Christians. See how much in common with them that you have and build a relationship in hopes that you can bring the gospel. See, creation, it says in Romans, is longing and groaning for restoration. And that is true not only of everything around us, it is true of the human beings around us. Don't ever forget that every person that walks by you that does not believe in the gospel is groaning and yearning. They may put on a face. They may have seemingly have it together. They may seem like their life is fine and they are not in need of anything, but it's not true. They have an internal groaning, a longing for the truths that the gospel can bring. They have a longing for Christ, for who he is, for what he's done, for what he's going to do. And we have the news that they need. Father, thank you so much for Acts chapter 28. Thank you for the reminders that we see in it of human nature. Thank you that human nature, like a spring, uh, just is such a good reminder of how we were originally intended to be. God, I pray that some of this would have made sense, that some of this would be encouraging. And God, really above all, I just thank you for these truths that apply to us, these truths, Lord, that are so true today. Father, we love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. I hope you have a great day.